What does the pursuit of happiness really mean? What do ancient and modern versions of the good life tell us about the nature of fulfillment? And how can deep learning contribute to living a good life? Curiouser, the new science of insight and innovation. This is Dr. Nancy Ellen Miller here, and welcome to 2023, start of a new year. And fittingly, today's episode is an exploration of the good life. And how does curiosity contribute to living a good life? Well, if you're like me, the beginning of a new year always starts with good intentions, resolutions, and thoughts about how to make life better. Visit the self-help section of any bookstore and the search for happiness takes up its own shelf. It's practically its own genre. The happiness hypothesis, the happiness equation, and happiness for dummies have all top bestseller lists. Every culture has its own brand of happiness. Ikigai, the Japanese secret to a long and happy life. The little book of Huge. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. The Danish way to live well. And Logum. Too little, not too much. The Swedish art of living a balanced and happy life. Despite what appears to be a universal fixation, there's little consensus on what happiness means, let alone how to reliably attain it. Our relentless pursuit has also been the subject of persistent satire. In Will Ferguson's 2001 novel, Happiness, a self-help publishing house takes out a patent on happiness. In his 1998 film, Happiness, Todd Soltz explores how human despair is rather ordinary, and it's wise to accept it as an everyday part of our existence. And then there's Eric G. Wilson, who Blossom argues in Against Happiness in praise of melancholy, that an obsession with happiness clouds the creative wellspring that arises from the dark nights of our souls. In searching for something as elusive and as vague as happiness, are we losing our sense of the bigger picture? In expecting life to give us happiness, or even a sense of meaning, are we expecting too much? In Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl quotes Friedrich Nietzsche, He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. To stay alive, Frankel's fellow prisoners in Auschwitz had to maintain hope and courage. They needed a why to bear the unbearable how. But more precisely, Frankel writes, they needed a fundamental change in their attitude toward life. It did not really matter what they expected from life, but rather what life expected from them. In that way, your humanity never ceases to have meaning even when the circumstances make living feel intolerable. Happiness cannot be pursued, he argued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself. The ancient Greeks had a word for that kind of happiness. They called it eudaimonia, combining eu meaning good and daemon meaning soul, self, 
or spirit. The word eudaimonia is as beautiful sounding as it is in meaning. Commonly translated as happiness, eudaimona is neither the transient happiness of fleeting pleasure, nor the content state of mind that comes from securing a high income. Eudaimonia is the experience of your humanity flourishing. To Aristotle, the happiness of eudaimonia represents the highest good a human being can attain. To live a good life means to dedicate yourself to a life of constant learning, character development, and right action. That leads to fulfillment, argues our Aristotle, which offers a deeper state of well-being than any jaunt on cloud nine. In the modern world, living the good life refers to something else entirely. The OED defines the good life as a life of luxury, pleasure, or material comfort. The American dream, once a dream of freedom founded on equal opportunity, has morphed into a dream that increases inequality. Only a small minority of the population can afford to jet set, invest in prime real estate, and drive luxury cars. When purchased on credit, those same status symbols create the illusion of freedom. Behind the dream lies life-crushing debt, not to mention a financial crisis from which the globe has yet to recover. Kanye West's hit, The Good Life, which celebrates the singer's Ferraris and trips to Las Vegas, represents a cultural ethos as much as it does Kanye's own aspirations and values. If you're a cinephile, the good life to you might look more like the life of Marcello Rubini in Federico Fellini's 1960 movie La Dolce Vita. A journalist with literary ambitions, Marcello drifts through Rome, chasing stories and buzzing about the party circuits. He writes a gossip column for a newspaper. A cameraman named Paparazzo follows him. Now you know where we get the word paparazzi. Marcello is a true flaneur. He haunts the city's elite underground nightclubs and mingles with black-tied mafia and feather-hatted aristocrats. Defining suaveness to a tee, he wears sunglasses at night, drives a 1958 Triumph TR convertible, and rarely takes off his single lapel black jacket. By all appearances, Marcello is living the good life. However sweet it is, Marcello never experiences satiety, let alone fulfillment. In an iconic scene, he chases the American actress Sylvia, played by a voluptuous Anita Edberg, into the Trevi Fountain. When he reaches out to her, Marcello's lips, writes film critic Roger Ebert, are forever prepared for a kiss he was to never experience. Whether it's romantic love or literary fame, Marcello is forever reaching and forever failing to feel fulfilled. Fellini wasn't using the phrase la dolce vita ironically. For all the decadence and debauchery that Marcello succumbs to, he never loses touch with the sweetness of life. When Marcello is tapping away on his portable typewriter in a trattoria by the ocean with a cigarette dangling from his lips, sweetness comes to him in the face of a young girl named Paola who waits his table she reminds him of an angel in an Umbrian church. And when that angel appears to him again by the sea in the final scenes of the film, the crashing waves drown out her young voice.
but the radiance in her smile and the music in her movements speak unmistakably of grace. Paola suggests the possibility of redemption, or at least a fresh perspective, for the jaded Marcello. Marcello's journey in La Dolce Vita reimagines Dante's from the Divine Comedy. Both follow a path of spiraling descent and ascent, their, their own inferno, purgatorio, and paradiso. Marcello's circuiting of the hotspots of Rome may seem a far cry from Dante's spiraling into the nine circles of hell, but both men experience an eye-opening descent into an underworld, curiously inhabited by celebrities. Dante meets Ovid and Homer, Cleopatra, Marcello meets movie stars and mobsters, crooks and gigolos who strut and preen around the fashionable Via Veneto. While Marcello follows Sylvia into the Trevi Fountain and up St. Peter's Basilica, he may not be literally entering purgatory and ascending to paradise, but there's more than a little Beatrice or vision of divine love in his Sylvia. To Catholics, the height of the Vatican is about as holy as you can get in Rome. The Vatican, in fact, launched a full-scale attack on La Dolce Vita, rebuking Fellini for trying to moralize through immorality. Like the first four circles of Dante's hell, limbo, lust, gluttony and greed, the Tibetan Buddhist folklore of the realm of the hungry ghosts depicts debilitating states of mind. Beings with mouths the size of needles and stomachs the size of mountains wander ceaselessly in a state of limbo. Slaves to self-interest, hungry ghosts never satiate their desires. They never fulfill their purpose. Their search for constant gratification and their inability to feel satisfied distracts them from even identifying one. Despite Marcello's wandering in a state of limbo, in his most reflective moments, the hero does long for purpose. He looks up to his mentor, who appears to have it all, a beautiful family, a successful literary career, the respect of the intelligentsia. But when his mentor dies from his own hands, Marcello begins to question whether the ideals he's been chasing have any value. Rome's elite parties appear to him more and more absurd. What he once found sweet, he soon finds sour. Perhaps you've faced your own existential crisis at some point along your journey. Disappointments may have made you cynical. The person you most admired turned out other than you'd hoped. Even when we search wholeheartedly for meaning and purpose in life, as Frankel suggests we do, life inevitably comes with disappointments. To Buddhists, this is a noble truth. Given the right circumstances, anyone can fall into the realm of the hungry ghosts. Colloquially, we talk about our demons, our hungry ghosts, as a curse. But maybe there's another way to look at it. As we'll explore further in ancient Greece, the daemon was not a curse. Your insatiable yearning, curiosity, and hunger arise naturally from your neurobiology, your taste for the sweetness of life, and your craving for pleasure are evolutionary. How you seek and respond to pleasure can make or break an enduring state of well-being. If by default 
you fixate on objects or experiences that offer only fleeting gratification, you may end up like Marcello, disillusioned and dissatisfied. Objects of fixation might appear in all sorts of guises, a love interest, a night of poker. On more than a few occasions when feeling overwhelmed, I found myself fixating on a pint of haagen Indulging in the memory of it, in my mind I see myself digging a spoon into bourbon vanilla bean truffle ice cream. It crests like a wave towards my lips and melts at the edges of my tongue. Seduced by that memory, my brain might orchestrate all the coordinations of movement, muscle, and mind to make the dream of bourbon vanilla ice cream come true. But when I've made my fantasy a reality, I usually don't feel relief so much as I do a stomach ache. Like Marcello, in the months after a mentor of mine fell victim to the opioid crisis, I too questioned my path and my purpose. To void the pain of my own grief and uncertainty, I didn't, like Marcello, escape into elite underground nightclubs or find solace in ice cream. But I did bury myself in work, which in today's culture has become a socially acceptable distraction, if not compulsion. At its best, work offers a path to fulfillment. Ideally, it aligns with our purpose. But when work turns into a coping mechanism to drown out fears and anxieties, it might develop into a form of addiction. You are in the realm of the hungry ghosts, writes physician Gabor Mate. We constantly seek something outside ourselves to curb an insatiable yearning for relief or fulfillment. The aching emptiness is perpetual because the substances, objects, or pursuits we hope will soothe it are not what we really need. We don't know what we need, and so long as we stay in the hungry ghost mode, we'll never know. Hungry ghosts might appear harmlessly at first. You might find yourself mindlessly scrolling on Instagram, or overspending on one too many new pairs of shoes. But hungry ghosts can also consume us in life-threatening addiction, an illness that Mate has spent a good part of his career treating. If left undigested, in the absence of a loving community, physical and psychological trauma can lead anyone to rely on unhealthy measures to relieve suffering. But that high can't be replicated by ordinary measures or even by another hit. Like the appetite of the hungry ghosts, the hunger of a heroin-addicted brain exceeds what the human mouth can swallow. There's no easy way out of addiction, but if undigested trauma lies at the heart of the behavior, then processing the pain needs to be a part of recovery. Most trauma therapists agree that the brain and nervous system need to transform rather than eliminate painful memories. Safe, caring relationships facilitate that transformation. People need to feel that someone validates their painful experiences. Their brains need to sense that it's safe enough to bring up any memories that may destabilize the body's internal systems. One of the strategies I use when working with people who've experienced trauma is the shared practice of mindfulness. As we touched on in the previous chapter, mindfulness at its root is the act of remembering. 
In the Buddhist tradition, mindfulness means to recall that life is interdependent, that everything is connected. People who have experienced trauma often lose that sense of connection. A victim of abuse, a veteran of war, or survivor of a car accident may, in the wake of their traumas, feel profoundly isolated. Few have encountered what they have. Their experiences often fall outside of the spectrum of what most people might consider normal. That may lead to feelings of shame. Wrapped up in those feelings often lies self-judgment. This shouldn't have happened, the mind says, or worse, I must have done something to deserve this. Simply by slowing down the rush of thoughts and bringing the mind to attend to the breath or the sensation of nurturing touch help to calm the nervous system. A calmer nervous system can more readily cultivate a conscious pause between action and reaction. When the fear system is less activated, the brain's executive function and the prefrontal cortex can more efficiently interrupt automatic responses that happen in a dysregulated state. Mindfulness also helps to elevate a person's baseline level of awareness. When you're calmly aware of what's happening in your body, as well as beyond it, in the environment, it helps you to regain a sense of cognitive control. In a mindful state, it's easier to recover and to integrate memories non-judgmentally. The brain can learn to stop fighting against what has happened in the past. It can learn to stop avoiding painful memories, which is often the first step in integrating them. One way to look at that process of transformation is to borrow the Buddhist practice of the middle way or the middle path. When the Buddhist teacher Jack Cornfield was staying at a monastery in Thailand, he overheard the monks at twilight recite original verse on the middle way. He translates the verse into his own words. If we seek happiness purely through indulgence, we're not free. And if we fight ourselves and the world, we are not free. It is the middle path that brings freedom. Learning to rest in the middle way requires trust in life itself. In times of upheaval, the middle way might be difficult to find, let alone tread. Those who survived significant trauma need guidance to relearn how to trust in life itself. Walking the path in relationship is easier than walking it alone. As I write this, the pain brought on by the pandemic has been pervasive. Intersecting with that trauma have been extremes of racial injustice coming to a head. In these times, we need to walk together. Mindfulness break. Mind the hungry ghosts. Hungry ghosts appear to us in all sorts of ways, seeking mindlessly to satiate our cravings or addictions. In the next chapter, we'll examine all the ways that seeking is key to our survival and our fulfillment. But hungry ghosts seek to the extreme, never satiated, their desires never cease. Whether your hungry ghost is seeking a pint of ice cream, a pair of boots, or a hit of heroin, it fixates on a particular object or experience as the source of that fulfillment. Develop a habit of noticing when you begin to fixate on an object or experience. Whatever the fix may be, your brain has retained the memory of the pleasure or the absence of pain that object or experience once gave you. 
Hungry ghosts might obsess over an ideology, a new technology, or a rigorous form of exercise. Some social media applications have been designed to trigger a release of dopamine, which if left unregulated can lead to compulsive behavior. Even activities designed to benefit the body, like exercise, if taken to an extreme might push us into the realm of the hungry ghosts. Throughout this book, you'll be introduced to new methods to increase your curiosity. You'll learn to arouse the networks of your brain that seek and expect new and pleasurable experiences. A healthy amount of seeking is good for the brain, but mindless seeking can lead anyone to become addicted to pleasure. Before arousing your seeking network, take a moment to check in mindfully with your hungry ghosts. Approach them not with fear, but with curiosity. The last thing you want is for their hunger to get in the way of your fulfillment, their desire to get in the way of your flourishing, or their cravings to get in the way of your path to an optimal state of being. One of the most effective ways to deal with cravings, distractions, and fixations is to meet them with a relaxed state of mind. When you're relaxed, it's easier to stay awake to the present moment and loosen your attachment to the memory of pleasure and your craving to re-experience it. Luckily, our brains are equipped with a quick and easy mechanism to relax and to stay alert. Yawning. Yawning is contagious. Birds yawn, cats yawn, lions yawn. My dog, Bentley, yawns every morning in the downward dog pose. Olympic athletes yawn before a race. Speakers yawn before they go on stage. Why? Brain scan research conducted by neurosurgeon Andrew Newberg and Mark Waldeman has uncovered that yawning is one of the easiest ways to enter a calm state of beingness. Yawning slows down activity in those areas of the brain that generate worries, doubts, and uncertainties. Yawning stimulates the insula and anterior cingulate, the key nodes of the salience network, which help you to integrate other networks in the brain, enabling you to accomplish your goals and experience deep satisfaction. Increasing cerebral blood flow and activating the area of your brain responsible for higher levels of cognition Yawning also releases neurochemicals that increase your motivation, memory, and sensual pleasure. Connections have been made between yawning and empathy, which might explain why when you see someone yawn, you can't help but do it yourself. Mindful yawning before a test can increase your grades, and mindful yawning before a difficult conversation can help you avoid conflict. When it comes to minding the hungry ghosts, a few deep, mindful yawns can help prevent the rush of thoughts, feelings, and impulses that might lead you to seek relief in unhealthy ways. When it comes to addiction, yawning is not a substitute for medical intervention and accessing social support, but yawning can help protect your hungry ghosts from hijacking your experience of what's happening in the present moment. So let's try it. Yawning in three steps. Yawn three or four times, making the ah sound on the exhale. Ah. Ah. 
take a few more mindful yawns and then notice your state of mind. Does your mind feel clear, more alert, more relaxed? If you feel exhausted after yawning, it's likely you need more sleep. When you yawn, take pleasure in the feeling. You can also combine yawning and movement to reconnect your body with how it feels in the present moment. Gently move a part of your body, like your arm. And when you feel the slightest ache, pause and yawn, and then move slowly again. Yawn whenever you feel tension, craving, or distraction. Yawn throughout the day until it becomes a habit. Use yawning as a tool to relax, stay alert, and to appease the insatiable appetites of those hungry ghosts. Thank you for joining me. This has been Dr. Nancy Ellen Miller, reading from my book, Curiouser, The New Science of Insight and Innovation. Thanks for joining me. I hope you feel more awake, more relaxed. If you're curious to learn more about how curiosity can benefit your work, life, and relationships, check out my book, Curiouser, on Amazon. Links in the episode description. In the meantime, stay curiouser.